After suffering many setbacks, Job said, That which I greatly feared came upon me. Be careful what you fear, because it very likely will come upon you. What is it that you fear? We typically think of fear as a negative thing. However, there is a positive function of fear. That is namely the fear of God. There is a story found in the book of Acts about a centurion, a soldier by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a man of great standing within the Roman army and within his community. And the Bible teaches us that he was a God-fearer. He feared God. It's been a long time since that terminology has been viewed positively as it relates to us. How long has it been since someone has said to you, you're a God-fearing person? Actually, it's sort of passe. In fact, some of us would might be even embarrassed if someone described us as a God-fearing person. But Cornelius was a God-fearer. And the Bible says, as a result of that, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. That which he greatly feared came upon him, namely, God himself. If you want to have God to come upon you, then you, like I, must fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? Its most basic meaning is that of anxious dread produced by the realization that the impending judgment of God is at hand upon a person. This is seen in the reaction that Adam had when he sinned. The Bible teaches us that Adam hid from God. Why? Because he was afraid of God. The reason was because he sensed that he was under the judgment of God because of his sin. For those of us who are in Jesus Christ, I love the song which we sang, Christ on solid, the solid rock. And we are told that we are dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless to stand upon his throne. We who know Jesus Christ do not fear God in the sense that Adam feared God because Christ has taken our punishment for us. We're going to look at that in some detail today as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. However, there is a sense in which we still, as believers in Christ, are to live a life of fear in relationship to God. The Bible does say in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The implication is, if I don't, I'm going to miss something that will result in the disciplinary action of God in my life. And that is true. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17, Peter teaches the people to whom he wrote, and the Spirit of God speaks to us, that we are to really conduct ourselves in fear as we work our way through this life as aliens and strangers. Well, there's another aspect of the fear of the Lord that applies more to us who know Jesus, though, and it's just this idea of veneration or awe or reverence. Unfortunately, in modern times, Christians have become too chummy with God. He's like our buddy. Have you ever noticed, though, in the Bible, whenever God encounters someone, the response of those people whom he encounters, do they go and slap him on the back and say, Hey, how's it going, dude? That's not what people do in the Bible. When people see God, they hit their faces usually. In the book of Revelation, when John saw Jesus, what did he do? He fell on the ground like a dead man. We have lost the sense of the awe of God, and we need to recapture that sense. How do we know that we fear God? Well, in several places in the Bible, 
The fear of God is equated with obedience to the Lord. In Psalm 112, verse 1, the Bible says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then it defines what fearing the Lord is, who greatly delights in His commands. Do you greatly delight in the commands of the Lord? Or do you find the commands of the Lord burdensome in your life? Do they weigh you down? How do we regain or recapture the fear of the Lord? The first place we begin in regaining the fear of the Lord is to believe what God says about the fear of the Lord. And this may come as a surprise to you. It did to me as I was caused to reflect upon it. In Jeremiah 32:40, when God is speaking about the new covenant, he is cutting with the people of God. He says this. He says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. So God ensures ultimate fear on my part in relationship to Him because He puts that fear of Himself in my own heart for my own good. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, when Isaiah was speaking of the coming Messiah, of course, Jesus is that Messiah, this is what he says in part about Him. He says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And we know that Jesus Christ comes to live in us. That's how the fear of the Lord has come to live in our lives. One of the names which is used to describe God in the Old Testament is the fear of Isaac, interestingly enough. The fear of the Lord is in us in the sense that Christ has come to live in us. And as 1 John chapter 3 says in verse 9, that if we really know the Lord, we will not continue in sin. We do sin, obviously, but it will not be the predominant theme of our lives. So the place to begin is believe what God says in His Word. God says He has put His fear in my heart so that I will not turn away from Him. So when I sense myself turning away from the Lord, when I sense myself being prone to wander away from the Lord, what am I to do? I'm to believe God. I'm going to God and I say, Lord, this is what you say, and I'm trusting you to produce a healthy fear of you in my heart. Here's another thing that will help us to regain the fear of the Lord. It is to get a right understanding of God's nature. All sin is the direct result of a faulty understanding of the nature of God. We do not dwell enough on the majesty of God, on the holiness of God, on the transcendent glory of God. Please understand, He is the Creator and we are the creatures. We do have a unique relationship with Him, an amazing relationship that is the result of what Jesus Christ and He have done for us. Nevertheless, we live in this relationship with the Lord who is awesome and powerful and mighty. Lastly, we need to get a sense of the pervasiveness of God. God is everywhere. One of the verses that helps me to remember this, and which really has kept me from sinning a lot in my life, is found in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, where the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. That's a little scary, isn't it? Now, some of you teenagers think the eyes of your mom are in every place. How does she come up with all that information? I have no idea except to say that the Bible says, Be sure your sin will find you out. That applies to young people as well as old people like me. Our sin finds us out. Why? Because nothing escapes the notice of God in my life or your life. Now, this is a very cheerful message, isn't it, today? Aren't you all excited about this? But really, this is a very important message. I like what John Murray says about the fear of the Lord. He says, it is the very soul of godliness. 
If we want to become like Jesus Christ, we're going to fear the Lord. The Bible says, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. Sure, Jesus is our friend. He is a loving elder brother. But he is our Lord also, and we have to have this kind of relationship with him. What will be true of us if we fear God? If we fear God, we need not fear anything else. Now look at verse 11 of our passage. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. The Apostle Paul knew the fear of the Lord. His comrades knew the fear of the Lord. The New Testament church knew the fear of the Lord. Now this is interesting. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the Bible says that the church continued to progress in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You and I will never understand the comfort which God has for us, the peace which God has for us, apart from healthy fear of the Lord. We need to understand that. And the Bible goes on to say there in Acts 9.31 that the church increased. It grew. Do you know the churches which God is really blessing? I'm talking about the local churches. Those are the churches who have a fear of the Lord. And until there's a restoration of the fear of the Lord in my heart, in your heart, in our hearts, we will never see the Spirit of God give the comfort that He desires to give to His people. If we fear God, we need not fear anything else. What are some of the things which we fear? Especially as it relates to the theme of this passage of Scripture, which is the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry which... Actually, as far as I know, is the only stated ministry that the Lord has given to us as His people. He's called us to this ministry of reconciliation, of putting men in touch with God and God in touch with men. That's why we are described in 1 Peter chapter 2 as believers as a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. God has given us this marvelous ministry. The only ministry, as far as I can tell, as I've mentioned, that He has given to us. What are some of the things we fear in the discharge of this particular ministry? Well, I can tell you the things that I have feared along the way. I can't speak for you. But I've feared rejection. Have you ever feared rejection? When it came to telling others about their need to be reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're afraid we'll be viewed as fools Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. I always remember a story I heard based on that verse about a man in Times Square who was wearing a sandwich board. Now, those of you who are younger may not know what that means, but it's something that's used to advertise and people just walk up and down the street. On the front were these words, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back were the words, whose fool are you? Everybody is somebody's fool. I guarantee you there's only one person I want to have as the master of my foolishness, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And when we sense that we're about to be rejected and we sort of clam up, and we get rigid rather than share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people, we need to remember that we are fools for Jesus Christ. And we need to remember what God said to the prophet Samuel when Samuel had been rejected, or at least so he thought, by the people of Israel. They didn't want him to be their judge anymore. They wanted an earthly king. And this is what God said to him. They haven't rejected you. 
they rejected me. So when I share Jesus Christ with someone, and I fear rejection, what I remember is, if I am rejected, it's because they're rejecting you, Lord, not me. Another thing that I have feared along the way in relationship to this ministry of reconciliation is the fear of failure. Have you ever had that fear? Maybe I won't say the right thing. Maybe I'll turn this person off. Well, let me just give you a word of encouragement from the Word of God. 1 Samuel 14, 6 says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You can fumble and stumble through a presentation of Jesus Christ to somebody, and that's not going to keep that person from coming to Jesus Christ. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 14, 26. He says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Where does confidence come from in terms of exercising this ministry of reconciliation, sharing Jesus Christ with other people. It comes from the fear of the Lord. No wonder we are so faulty in our sharing this ministry of reconciliation. We really don't fear the Lord. But if we do, we'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, there is nothing I cannot master with the help of the one who gives me strength. Failure is not a part of a Christian's vocabulary as long as the Christian fears the Lord and trusts the Lord. Another thing that we tend to fear, it's really not a thing, we fear people, don't we? We fear beings. We fear the devil. Many of us are fearful of him, and he tries to strike fear in the heart of anybody who wants to enter into this ministry of reconciliation. Because the Bible says, listen carefully, the Bible says that when the gospel has been preached to all ethnic groups, all language groups, then the end will come. And the devil is pretty dumb on a lot of things, but he's pretty smart about one thing. He knows when the end comes, he's going into the abyss, and the key's going to be thrown away forever. He's going to be locked up forever at that point. He's going to be in the lake of fire forever. That's not going to be a good deal for him, for sure. So he works double time to try to keep us from entering into this ministry of reconciliation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How does that work? It's because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have fit our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And the devil doesn't like that. And Satan works hard to intimidate us. He is a bully. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But what we must understand is the Bible teaches in Psalm 34, 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and the angel of the Lord rescues them. That doesn't mean we will not experience harm. We know from the study of church history that many have spilled their blood and lost their lives in exercising the ministry of reconciliation. But we will have ultimate rescue from the angel of the Lord. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, the Bible teaches us. So Jesus Christ in us helps us to overcome the fear of Satan and the fear of other people. In Romans 8, Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody, right? In Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, the Bible says, The fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. But he or those who trust in the Lord will be exalted. As we trust the Lord, as we fear the Lord, he will take care of us. So if you and I fear the Lord, we need not fear anything else. Isn't that a relief? Just to be done. Well, it's like a weight lifted off your shoulders. To be done with fear.
because we know the Lord is on our side. Well, the second truth which emerges from this passage is this. If we fear God, we will urge others to be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, to begin with, it presupposes there's enmity between two individuals. And it's not one-sided enmity. There is a war going on between God and man because of man's sin against God. And God does not take our sin lightly, as we're going to see. But if we fear God, we will urge others to be made right with God. Why will we urge them? Well, we're going to see in some detail, but let me just go ahead and make mention of the fact. We know what the Bible says is true in Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We would not wish that on anyone, to fall into the hands of the living God. We also know what Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who are able to kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, be fearful of him who is able to kill both soul and body in hell. That's talking about our God. He is a loving God, as this passage teaches, but he is also a God of justice and a God of holiness. And sin exacts a price. The wages of sin is death. And if we really know the Lord, and we really know what He's done for us, and by the way, the love of God can never be experienced in its totality until you and I first have a healthy fear of the Lord. Because we recognize that before we received Jesus Christ, we were the objects of the wrath of God. We were destined for total separation from God and a painful existence in what Scripture calls, calls hell. And this motivates us to want to urge people. Look at this verse 11 again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That's a strong word. Now jump down to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have you ever begged anybody to be reconciled to God? Have you pled with people to come to Jesus Christ to be reconciled? Understanding that if they don't get reconciled to God, they have a very, very dim future. And it's incumbent upon us who have experienced this grace from God to minister to people in this way. Well, this ministry of reconciliation which has been given to us, God is the author of this ministry. Look at verse 18. Now, all these things are from God. The New English Bible does a wonderful job of interpreting this, and let me quote the way in which the New English Bible says, From first to last, all these things have been the work of God. Every bit of my salvation... From first to last, all these things, it's the work of God. You know, I didn't think up the idea of wanting to be reconciled from God. If I have any desire to be made right with God, God is the one who initiated the process. Now, let's read through this passage and notice seven times in this passage, from 18 through 21, seven times God is the subject of this ministry of reconciliation. Never in Scripture will you find man being the subject of reconciling himself to God. Sometimes man is the subject, but if he is the subject, the voice of the verb is passive, meaning that the subject is being acted upon. 
I am never the one who takes the first step in the direction of God. God is the author of this ministry of reconciliation. Before we read this, let me give an illustration of this. Some of you have in person seen the great painting of Michelangelo where God is reaching out to Adam. If you have not seen it in person, surely you've seen a painting of it. You've seen that picture? A beautiful, beautiful picture. If you study that picture carefully, that painting, what you've noticed is that God is straining. It seems as though every muscle in his face is contorted as he's reaching down to Adam. But what posture has Adam assumed in the picture? He's rather laid back and unconcerned, apparently. And he's just sort of limp-wristedly reaching out as if to say to God, Well, if we touch, it's okay, and if not, it's okay. That is a picture of what Paul paints about humanity in Romans chapter 3. And verse 18 says, There is no fear of the Lord among those people who do not know the Lord. Nobody seeks the Lord. Only God is the one who initiates this process. Let's look at verse 18 again. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And we typically think, and rightly so, that Jesus Christ was the big loser on the cross. But really, he was a winner, wasn't he? Because he gained a whole kingdom as a result of his dying. He secured our salvation. But we know the cry of dereliction on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became sin on our behalf, and the result of that was that he became fatherless for the first time in eternity. He became fatherless. But not only that, we tend to overlook the fact that the father became sonless also. And there was great grief for the father. Remembering that God's the one who initiated this process, God the Father, not Jesus the Son of God. Jesus did not initiate it. Jesus chose to follow and fulfill the the responsibility which he had in this process of our being made right with the Father. But the Father lost too. Now let's look at a little further here in the middle of verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them. Wow. That is huge. What is this saying? That when... God the Father gave Jesus the Son to die on the cross, as we saw last week from 1 John 4.10. Jesus became the propitiation for our sin, which means he became the place where the wrath of God was appeased when he died on the cross. God poured all of his wrath out upon Jesus Christ, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing is held against you and me. God counts nothing against us anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What an amazing, amazing thing. The Puritans used to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Does that mean that they believed you had to be saved over and over and over and over again? Not at all. What they were saying was, remind yourself of the great debt which you owe to the Lord. There's a song which is sung, it's been running in my mind as I've thought about this passage of Scripture. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe in order to secure my place in heaven so that all my sins are washed away. All of them, not just some of them, but all of them. Now let's continue here in the latter part of verse 19. 
And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the ultimate goal of our being reconciled to God? That we might become righteous in Christ. Positionally righteous, we've already talked about that. Jesus was made flesh in his mother's womb, it has been said. Jesus was made sin on the cross on our behalf in order that we might be made right with God. William Temple, great Anglican bishop, said this, The only thing of my very own that I have to contribute to redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. That's all I have to contribute. Nothing. I add nothing to what God has done. And if you're laboring under the misconception that you've got to get good enough in order to receive this gift of eternal life, then be freed from that misconception. It is a false understanding of what it means to receive the gift of eternal life. We need to throw ourselves at the mercy of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask Him to forgive us of our sin. James Denny, the great scholar from the 19th century said this about verse 21 of this passage of Scripture. He said, "Is the key to the whole of the New Testament. If we understand this verse, that God the Father, not the Jewish authorities, not the Roman authorities, but God the Father made Jesus, who was sinless, to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And we need to understand, this is our message that we are able to share with people. Jesus Christ is the agent of this wonderful salvation. Look at verse 14, the last part. One died for all, therefore all died. And we have already seen in verse 18 how God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the agent. Now, what is our responsibility? We're the ambassadors, right? Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And notice the motivation for the fulfillment of our ambassadorship. It's another way of saying we're disciples of Jesus Christ. Is Christian discipleship based upon my making you feel guilty that you're not entering into this ministry of reconciliation? You know, guilt will work for a while, but it won't work very long. There are people who used to come here regularly on Sunday, and I don't have anyone in mind, but I'm sure there are, who don't come anymore because they got this guilt thing going. Obligation in itself is not enough for you to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation. Look at what Paul writes here in verse 14. For the love of Christ, and parenthetically he could have said, for me, controls me, or for us, controls us, constrains us, compels us. A better word would be impels us. It's something that's internal. The motivation comes from the realization of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And I cannot keep quiet about it because I love the Lord for what He's done for me, and I love people for whom Christ died. Well, let's look at verses 16 and 17 as we begin to finish this Study this morning. Verse 16 says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Do you know what happens when a person has the ministry of reconciliation? 
We don't view people the way we used to view people. We look at people altogether differently. We become like Christ in the way in which He viewed people. God, the Bible tells us, looks at the heart, whereas we look at the outward appearance. I'm looking out over uh, probably a couple of hundred or more people here this morning, and I can form a lot of opinions about you by the way you look. But what happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, then the person sees those people for whom Christ died, because this passage of Scripture teaches us Christ died for all. And we see those people as people who are potentially like Christ, and they can become people who can be tools of reconciliation in the hands of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Let's go ahead and read the last part of verse 16 and verse 17. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. They knew Him in the Spirit. And need I remind you today that there was nothing beautiful about the way Jesus looked. He was not movie star quality in His looks. He was very plain in the way in which he looked. He was very neat, I'm sure, very clean, well kept, but he did not try to impress anybody with the way in which he looked because he understood what really mattered is in a person's heart. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So someone comes to Christ. Now, here's what happens many times. Those of us who have been in the church maybe all of our lives, and someone comes to know Jesus Christ from a life that has no acquaintance with the gospel whatsoever, and that person's radically changed, but everything about that person's appearance doesn't change overnight. Maybe he's got a pierced ear and he keeps wearing his earring. Or maybe he's got spiked hair and he keeps spiking his hair. Well, look, let's don't worry about the externals, okay? The Lord's not interested in that. The Lord's interested in the heart of an individual. And we will be too if we have this ministry of reconciliation because we will have eyes like Christ has and we'll see this person in his or her new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Last week, I talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Remember the illustration I gave about the spiritist who came and was converted? Well, in that same ministry venue in Aberavon, Wales, there were so many other people converted, as I mentioned, hundreds over the course of the 11 years of his ministry there. And what he said was that the wives of many of the fishermen who came to Christ, when they would go to the market every day, and in that day women went to buy food every day at the market, that instead of talking about how their husbands preferred going to the movies, they were talking about how their husbands preferred to go to prayer meetings. That's pretty powerful. And Lloyd-Jones talked about one little boy whose father was a drunkard and would really spend all the money that he made before he ever got home on Friday evening at the end of the week on booze. And how he came to his Sunday school teacher and said, Miss, with great joy in his face, Miss, we had dinner last night. We had gravy and potatoes and meat and rice pudding. Why? Because his father had become a new person in Christ. When Christ comes into your life, you change. And if you haven't changed, forget about claiming Christ as your Lord and Savior. Change is inevitable when you come to Jesus Christ. George Foreman 
lost the rumble in the jungle. You may remember that. Some of you are old enough to remember that to Muhammad Ali. And this is his own testimony about his life prior to that defeat. I had never been much of a talker. I got into boxing because my trainer told me that I could make lots of money and buy fleets of cars by hitting hard. So when my promoters ask me to speak out or to endorse a product, I just say, I talk with my fists. He lost that fight, and his demise came three years later in Puerto Rico when he lost by being knocked out by Jimmy Young, an inferior fighter, so the pundit said. And he said, as he was in the dressing room after this major defeat, he said, all around me was death and nothingness, and I was drowning. Then the hand of God reached down and rescued me. Who took the initiative in George Foreman's life? God did. The hand of God reached down and rescued me. And he said, for a while I kept my vision a secret. Then one Sunday at church, some teenagers I had befriended suggested that I preach out on the streets. We got ourselves an amplifier and traveled to towns in Texas and Louisiana. I would cry out, I used to want fancy clothes and cars and money, but now that I've found God, you should have said that God has found me, I'm a happy man. I drive this pickup truck. It doesn't drive me. Hallelujah. And he goes on to say, as far as I was concerned, that George Foreman rascal had died in that dressing room in Puerto Rico. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you have that experience in your life? I hope so. In Saxony, a rebellion broke out, and the reigning king went to squelch the rebellion. He was successful. And being a benevolent king, he decided to offer clemency to anyone who would come to his castle and pledge loyalty to him. And he said, however, there would be a time limit. He put a huge candle over the archway of the main entrance into the castle where he was residing. And he lit the candle and he sent a herald throughout the area where this rebellion occurred to spread the word that anybody who had rebelled against him had until that candle had burned down. When the light went out, then it was no longer possible for them to have forgiveness and to be part of the kingdom. You know, time's running out for somebody in this room today. You don't know how much longer you have to live. But God knows and God's extending His mercy to you. However, there's a limit to the patience of God. There's a limit to the mercy of God. In this same general area of Scripture, let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And working together with Him, we also urge you, here's that urgency, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of your salvation, the day of mine, the day for us to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name. To instill the fear of the Lord in us. Make us individuals in a church who are known for the fact that you We thank you for your great love for us, as seen in what you did for us, Father, in Jesus. 
And we ask you to forgive us for taking that for granted. For those who are here today, Lord, who have never opened their hearts to Christ, we pray that they would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Be born again by the living and abiding Word of God. For those of us who have grown cold in this area of entering into helping others to be reconciled to you, forgive us, Lord, and reignite the fire in our hearts. Constrain us by the love of Christ in whose name I pray. Amen.